Greetings from the Bioconference in San Diego, the first held face-to-face -face since 2019. Today, Vital Transformation presented our research showing the impact of changes being proposed to the accelerated approval pathway on U.S. biopharma and patients. I'm joined today at our podcast booth on the floor of Bio in the conference featuring Nick Shipley, Executive Vice President of Bio, John Murphy, Bio's Chief Policy Officer and Deputy Counsel, who moderated our panel, and Joe Hamming, Vital Transformation's U.S. Business Director and a neuroscientist extraordinaire. Gentlemen, good to see you all. How are you doing? Great. Doing well. Thanks for having us. It's yeah. great to have you guys here. It's great doing. I always, I always have to think about that, Joe Hamming, the neuroscientist, yeah. right? <laughs> How long were you with Bench Scientist, Joe, honestly? It's been since uh, the late 90s. I was off the bench in, in the policy and public affairs world. So, you know, with the training and all, uh, about two decades. Obviously, what happened with Biogen, this hits close to home because you were on the early stage of Alzheimer's research. Yeah, I, that's right. I started my career at Bristol-Myers Squibb uh, building transgenic animals for Alzheimer's disease. Like all companies back in those days, we were racing to try to come up with a model system that would, would help us devise new, new therapies and, and bring new therapies to market. And sadly, uh, we're still... <laughs> Yeah. Trying to create models and, and trying to bring molecules uh, forward. It's a, a very, very complex disease, and the answers are not going to be easy. Following up what CMS, Center for Medicaid Services, had decided to limit coverage on a new Alzheimer's therapy by Biogen. Since that time, it's been game on as far as new interesting proposals to fix, and I'm doing air quotes, and improve the accelerated approval pathway, sort of the point of our presentation mm -hmm. today. Nick and John... Why is the accelerated approval now the bete noir, the black sheep of D.C. <laughs> politics? What's going on there? Well, I can let Nick comment on the political side, but I'll say, you know, on, on the broader policy side, there has been, uh, I think, a sense that there are one or two uh, companies that have taken advantage of the pathway. And um, I think what we show in the report that you guys released today is that that's demonstrably untrue. So, you know, in, in looking at the data... You have the 206 approvals under the accelerated approval pathway during the study period. The vast majority of them have demonstrated significantly good clinical evidence in the three to four years following the time the approvals were, were provided, which allowed them to convert. And, you know, what is often lost in the Washington policy debate is this idea that some trials take forever and that companies are gaming the system by not getting it converted. You know, and I think what the study shows twofold. One, FDA has demanded the withdrawal of at least... 12%, I think, of the of the 206 accelerated approvals over the time period, all of which probably deserved that. And then two, those trials that did take longer than the average three to four year period, really, I think it's three years, the actual average. Yeah, the median. Uh, it, the median was three years. You know, those trials that took longer, you, you can show the scientific basis for the reason for those. So, you know, we highlight in the study, one product that had 18 years to get to conversion. And part of the reason for that was you were able to show that that study uh, had 33 people who were the only people afflicted by the disease. So gathering the evidence in 33 people to demonstrate the clinical benefit took that long, not that the companies were delaying it. Um, but I think that there is this perception that Medicaid programs in particular on short budgets because they're either underfunded or uh, as a result in particular of the pandemic of a flood of new enrollees onto the program, that they had to find some way to release the pressure valve on the budgetary impact. And they found the accelerated approval process as a convenient objective 
whipping boy for them to, to apply. And so I think that that's fed into this broader narrative, which I think Nick probably has some perspective on uh, that has now boiled up to the federal conversation. Yeah, it is about perception in a lot of these cases. The, uh, you know, and you've had, you know, just generational turnover in, in the members and the staff there who were not there when accelerated approval was instituted. Um, you know, it was a congressionally mandated program that was that was set up specifically to do these things. And now, uh, you know, without that institutional knowledge there, I think a lot of industry antagonists are kind of leveraging um, that perception to have this broader attack. And they and they really did go after uh, the whole program and, and take advantage of the of the fact that there weren't enough people there still still there remembering the HIV AIDS fights, remembering sure. some of the breast cancer fights. Well, it goes back to 92. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that just led to a little bit of a perfect storm and because it, it also synced up with moving FDA legislation in the, in the uh, Prescription Drug User Fee Act. So I think that also kind of was the, the last piece of kindling on the pile there that set it off. So is it just midterm politics? Is it mostly that? I don't think it's just midterm politics. I, I mean, you know, you got to be honest with yourselves. We've, we've been in an extended cycle where just anything kind of anti-industry pulls really well. Right. And so, you know, on, on both sides of the aisle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, and I think it's because these, these issues are hard. They're harder to explain. And there's, you know, an old saying that if, if you're explaining, you're losing. It flared up. A bunch of people could pile on, score some points, and they don't think about, like, what does it actually mean on the policy outcome at the end? You're literally turning to a bunch of Alzheimer's patients and, you know, saying, sorry, there's no hope. Please go away. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, Nick answered that, anticipated what I was going to say. And, and if you go back to 1992, the pressures on the industry were were great then, but uh, they're so much greater now. So again, yeah. it's this, to use John's term, a convenient whipping boy is the industry, and uh, it's an easy place to pile on. The expression I like to use is the industry makes a good snidely whiplash, you know, the black yeah. hat tying the woman to the railroad tracks. You well, know? And I think that <laughs> part of that is, is born, too, of that point, right? the scary mustache guy from from the old <laughs> films right this is this is wrapping itself into a broader debate on drug pricing more practically um, and a distrust of the industry you know in a more broad sense that and this is just me speculating but i mean i think there's a dissatisfaction in certain state houses as well as in certain caucuses on the hill that they've been unable to do something material on drug pricing and this is a way that they can influence the debate and at least have, you know, if you look at Medicaid programs telling the poorest, most vulnerable Americans they can't get access to certain therapeutics that rich, privately insured patients can, somehow they spin that, or at least they think they're spinning that by saying, well, we're actually protecting you from the high drug prices for these products that just don't work very well, right? Do you gentlemen honestly think there needs to be some reform to the accelerated approval? There's a real nuanced answer here to this because sure. I think in, if you go back in time, you know, however many months before all this happened, you know, I would have said no. You know, this has been a successful program as John, you know, cited the stats from the report you guys released. You know, FDA has a lot of authority to pull products off the market if they're not doing what they're supposed to do in terms of confirmatory trials. But I think as we've gone on through this kind of political upheaval around the program. We have seen a lot of what I'll just call assaults from the payer end, you know, organs filing a, a CMS waiver to get out of paying for accelerated approval. Yeah. United put out their own coverage decision around Adjuhelm where they said, they're, you know, we're not covering this. This sounds, you know, kind of silly, but I do think if there are some 
things that people feel would improve the program and they are not going to damage the program and slow it down with the exact opposite of intent, but they give the payer and patient community more comfort, more confidence. Um, I think, you know, we, we would certainly at this point say like that's, that's worth entertaining if only so we can get back to a rational conversation around this. But the problem you have, and this is what we found in our research, 25% of these drugs are extremely narrow, small indications, and they just will take a long time because they're very narrow orphan targets. Fabrizyme, Genzyme's drug targeting Goucher's disease, was the drug that took the longest and it took 18 years, as John pointed out. It was a very, very small clinical trial, you know, 30, 40 patients. And that's just, you're not going to be able to run a big fat phase three trial to nail that. It's just not going to be possible. It's like trying to grab air with gloves. Well, for Gaucher's disease, that is a big fat trial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's about it. Because that is all you have. That's the key. Any federal process like this that's been around for 30 years is going to need some tweaks. It makes sense. And to argue, no, no, we don't want to, we don't want to even touch anything is a non-starter. That's not the way that this should be working. So with all of that experience and with all of those amazing drugs that have come to market over that time, to look at it now with a very, very careful eye and do the fine tuning in a data-driven approach. Let's make the best of this even better, and let's do some fine-tuning. I think that's a winning argument. Well, and I think the industry also has to be evaluated on the evidence it brings, and that brings up the point of maybe this isn't a way to fix it, the accelerated approval process legislatively, but if you look at launching a cell therapy drug in Spain right now or an innovative novel therapy in France right now, the vast majority of, of those products coming to market have some sort of a value-based arrangement associated with them, right? To allow for access, and we, we can debate longer term the, the validity of the access requirements in, in the European countries, but I think it stands to reason that we do have a lot of that. And what's profoundly interesting to me is that there's never been a discussion to say, okay, well, we don't want to just pay for you to develop evidence. Well, there are alternative models that we could construct that allow you to get paid while you're developing the evidence. And then if ultimately there is an uh, unsuccessful confirmatory trial, you could have some mechanism in place. And it's hard to legislate that. But what was interesting to me is that CMS didn't even consider that. Right? No, All they no, did no, was revert to a, we're just not going to cover outside of a randomly randomized trial versus perhaps putting an olive branch out to the industry, which would have avoided the confrontation with FDA to say, we want to look at this in a more methodological process where you, whereby you can get evidence developed during the pendency of these trials. And we'll make, uh, you know, and I don't want to prescribe a payment methodology because that's, that's something that needs to be debated. But at risk sharing agreements, or at least installment style agreements are, are fairly common now in Europe. And, and Bio has advocated for the adoption of these in the United States. And it has, cr frankly, fallen on deaf ears, right? I mean, and, and you, you get a lot of pay dirt in the press for it. They say Congress should work for it, but it really nothing's happened there. And so I just think if you, if you want to talk about meaningful tweaks to the pathway, I would argue that it's less about the pathway and it's more about how do we allow for access while the evidence is being developed to do the confirmatory trials. But isn't the question then also certainty? Yeah. And on both sides. Because the problem is, if you're a biotech innovator, you need to know that you're going to have certainty that your calculations and the market size and everything you've done. I mean, this has been the problem with Alzheimer's. Obviously, you have a 99 plus percent failure rate. Yeah. So anybody who's going into that market, they're keeping their powder pretty dry and pretty close to their vest because they know it's infinitely harder than picking 35 black for a win on a roulette wheel. This is not 
a high probability play. <laughs> okay, yeah. there's certainly a desperate need, and it's a huge market. But so far, snake eyes every single time the world yeah, comes yeah. up, snake eyes. The question is then: the accelerated approval pathway created that certainty that allowed that, but there's still, from an payer standpoint, there also needs to be certainty because these people have a budget, they have a fixed budget, it's an annual budget, and they can't you know, move that budget around. They expect a certain amount of coverage. We have this many patients. It goes both ways, does it not? Nick, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I have a lot of sympathy for Medicaid budget uh, directors in the States. They're they're given, you know, a, a limited, lump, you know, kind of lump sum, and, they, and they've got to fit things in there. And this you know, probably looks like an appealing, easy way to trim budget. And especially when you're getting these signals from Washington, D.C. that like, oh, maybe there's something wrong with this program. It stands to reason if I'm out in the States that then maybe products that came through this program, I shouldn't have to cover them then. And if you're looking to shortcut your budget, that's that, that might be something you look at. I, I think they've got to take, you know, that extra step of saying, all right, well, what am I actually cutting off here? I'm cutting off oncology treatment you know, writ large, uh, you know, any that, that that's just been had a huge impact on the uh, accelerated approval program. They're cutting off all these most innovative therapies to their Medicaid population. That's kind of a, a really crazy concept. You know, I mentioned the Oregon waiver. You know, Oregon is a state that traditionally prides itself on having a very, you know, robust, strong Medicaid program. And this, this is certainly going in the opposite direction. And I also think it tends to be that classic, like, pennywise pound foolish. You, if you don't, don't treat these patients, they will show up in your hospital and you will pay for them. 10 times over in that setting. But it's right. another budget. Yes. yes. It's someone else's budget. It's but Nick, else's but budget. Nick brings up a good point, right? I mean, the budgetary impacts are what are trying to be mitigated. But, you know, and I, I realize we're talking about biotech, but you can't ignore the societal wellness problems that are underlying the broader issue, right? So 76% of healthcare costs in the United States are attributable to an avoidable illness. Generally speaking, it's heart disease. It's, it has things to do with obesity and, and lung diabetes, cancer. right? And we, yeah, yeah. And, and lung cancer, which the, the type of lung cancer, and I can't remember if it's small cell or large cell, but you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the type that is attributable to a lifestyle choice. And we are debating at the margins access to innovative therapies for many times chronic or autoimmune diseases that are uncontrolled by people's life choices and ignoring the fact that we probably need to have a broader debate in this country about the way we access wellness initiatives as well as the way we access the way we live our lives. We just lived through two years of a pandemic where the evidence will now show us demonstrably that certain lifestyle choices made by people had a predictive effect on whether or not their outcomes in COVID were bad or severe. And we wasted an entire two years as a country of talking about the possibility of harm reduction. And so I don't mean to get into a broader debate about public health economics, but what I'm saying is Medicaid programs constantly crow about their budget and they blame the pharmaceutical industry and the innovative space for treating cancers and ignore the fact that long-term care, which is just a poorly designed program to begin with, is 50% of the Medicaid budgets. And a lot of the other chronic conditions that could have been avoided with different lifestyle choices, I'm not trying to you know, say anybody needs to change anything individually, but there are a number of interventions that could be taken earlier that could probably bring down the overall healthcare costs for, for, for the country and for the Medicaid programs. We're just not having that discussion. We did a lot of work on CAR-T, and one of the things I found fascinating is a lot of the doctors didn't want to use CAR-T initially, and a lot of the problems with CAR-T is because you know, they're generating about a quarter million dollars, $250,000 for a stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. And then when you insert the CAR-T instead... 
that money that would normally go on the hospital budget internally goes out. Now, lower use of resources, totally more efficient, frees up beds. Mm-hmm. But to the hospital manager and the oncology unit, that looks like a net loss that's to the unit. That's a disaster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's exactly. a disaster to their bottom line. That's, that's, that's absolutely right. One of the things that bothers me the most and, and worries me the most when you consider, in this case, the CAR-T is a really great example. These are incredibly innovative new therapies. The, the opportunity to advance those, that general class of, of drugs, to advance that science, is absolutely critical right now for, for, for the long term. The, f- the, the fewer those drugs that come to market, the fewer those drugs that are used effectively in, in, in the clinic, the slower our progress towards you know, ultimately curing, quote-unquote, curing cancer. We're missing an opportunity when we don't push the best science forward in the real clinical setting, you know, on a day-by-day basis. And, and that's one of the things that's uh, on the chopping block here. And don't forget, those CAR-Ts fell under the same scrutiny and almost had the same treatment, that Biogen's drug, that they almost were rejected by CMS. So why did those get through? Is it just simply that it didn't have as big of a net budget impact, Jeff? I, I think there's, there's two questions. First, I think CMS approached CAR-Ts critically because, one, they didn't know how to pay for them. Like yeah. They had no infrastructure in place other than in the coding space to, to treat them as an outlier, not otherwise classified payment. And they physically didn't have the infrastructure to include them. And I think that was their first pause. And second, I think their view of the evidence early on, they were skeptical of the outcomes that they were seeing in the data. Again, not necessarily the province of CMS, but it took a Herculean effort of patient advocacy groups, which just, let's be honest, like we work in this space every day, right? The oncology community has a really strong patient advocacy group globally. And I fear that that is what also helped. And that's not a bad thing, but I fear that those smaller therapeutics that are coming online through the accelerated approval pathway that don't have a robust advocacy community aren't going to have the same benefit of advocacy in front of CMS to get them across the finish line. As far as CMS is concerned, John Dwyer in the, your panel this morning and uh, made it really very crystal clear point. And that is there's no way of looking at this decision as anything but a, a decision around cost. Yeah, yeah and, absolutely. And so you're right about the, we dodged a bullet, so to speak, with the, with with the CAR-T, but it set a path forward for, for this to come back, and, and it just did with Agilehome yeah, and, and, and Alzheimer's. You, and you just can't also ignore the fact that, you know, you had FDA officials and CMS officials say, well, oncology is a different conversation. Don't look at the Agilehome decision in the context of oncology because <laughs> it's important. Well, and look, yeah, 96% or 93% of the accelerated approvals in the past 10 years have been in the oncology space, but there's 7,000 rare diseases, all, almost all of which are outside of the oncology space that need a treatment. And so... What you're saying, I mean, I look at that oncology statement out of the joint press release from CMS and FDA saying we won't treat oncology this way. Basically, what I see that is them basically saying we're dooming the rest of these classifications to this kind of coverage. And so you should not invest in this space. No, And that's a point that really merits a a, a lot of attention here because it is and it's a, a kind of a political question. The oncology community is very active. Different administrations and different members of Congress have have run afoul of that uh, of that patient advocacy group uh, to their own detriment in, in the in the past, and I think that's why they were very clear to say 
or send signals, you know, we're not treating oncology this way. But I, but I think John is 100% right. Like, where does that leave everyone else? You know, where are all these other rare diseases that don't have this kind of history of, of patient advocacy and, and, and just quite frankly don't have the patient base to support it? We have had these, you know, phenomenal advances in science and, you know, everyone likes to talk a big game about precision medicine. And fundamentally what that means is a small group of patients there. They're not going to have, you know, thousands upon thousands of patients to write letters to FDA and things like that. Yeah, Sarepta was on our panel this uh, this morning, and they pointed out, look, we have 400 patients a year. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not going to, I mean, that's a, that's a tough advocacy group to motivate. You know? Well, and the advocacy <laughs> comes from NORD, and it comes from... Yeah, exactly. It yeah. comes from the Rare Disease Company Coalition. Uh, these are really important groups, but when you imagine uh, how their efforts are spread across, you know, thousands, literally yeah. thousands of disease areas, and, or thousands of, of diseases, the vast majority of which have no therapy. Yeah. And I also think, you know, what wor- worries me, and, and this, we didn't bring this up in the panel this morning, but what worries me a lot, because this could affect anybody, right? Cancer is a unique one because there are reversible effects, right? So progression-free survival obviously is a surrogate endpoint, but you can look at tumor shrinkage, sure. or in the case of the data released at, at ASCO last week in the bowel cancer study, right? I mean, like complete remission, right? right? So somebody goes on and just lives the rest of their life without the effect of the disease. 60% of leukemia patients get rituximab, and they're clear. Exactly. Boom, but, done. But even if you invented a treatment for Alzheimer's, my guess is, I'm not a scientist, Joe, Joe can answer this, you're never going to get the memories you lost back. I don't think they'll ever... I don't think that, like, in other words, the, the earlier you can intervene and stop the process, the better off the patient is. And so I worry, and, and, and the same would be, I think, true in Duchenne's, right, that the further progressed that child is into not being able to walk, there are obviously other diseases outside that space, but those are the therapies that you worry about. The delay is actually worsening the ability of that Absolutely. treatment to help someone. Whereas, you know, maybe a little delay in a cancer treatment, but then you get complete remission after a period of time. Yeah. I, I don't want to say no harm, no foul, but there's a possibility of getting that patient back to a normal life. Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And, and I, I'm, I am very passionate on, on the Alzheimer's space, having spent so much time there and been following it for so long. Your, your point is, is right on. If you treat too late, you're trying to reconstruct something that's, that, that's not going to come back. Uh, it's like anything else, maintenance. You, you let your house fall apart you're gonna have to you know bulldoze it rather than you know try to fix it if you wait too long early detection quick uh, therapies are given early that can arrest the development of uh, the neurodegenerative uh, disorder is absolutely critical and the neuroscience community is looking at this this way and that is say someone develops early signs of dementia we can't find keys or, or, or loss for various words or whatever if you can arrest that someone can live for a decade or two decades quite effectively maybe not at the same level as a as an 18 year old brain they can do very very nicely live with their family maybe even live on their own but not descend into this abyss and be institutionalized and that would be an incredibly important goal. 
that last point you talked about with the, the hospitalization and the institutionalization and, and, and there's another level to it about like needing in-home care. Mm. That's part of why I thought the, the budgeting discussion, you know, the budget outlook was a pretty dishonest discussion, a pretty dishonest yeah. way of looking at this. You know, they were, they were really exactly. going after this Alzheimer's products without looking at any of these other budgetary impacts. And, and I think that's the tyranny of quality on some yeah. levels, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, you know, you also saw it in the, the Medicare Part B premium discussion around this. They, they made claims about the need to increase premiums to account for, you know, for, the, for this product and then only to come out later and say, like, utilization was so low, like, we did, none of it was justified. And they've just really been, uh, been and quite honestly, I don't know how to put it, but pretty dishonest about the way they've uh, they've justified some of the cost and budget numbers. I'd like to hit some of the key points of the study again, picking up on something you, Nick, and John have mentioned, focusing on the non-oncology orphan drugs, which are a predominant part of the accelerated approval, particularly the ones that take longer. What we found is, you're correct, the median is three years. I was quite surprised by that. With all the rhetoric and hype and bloviating around this pathway, three years, 50% convert. That was shocking to me. It's like, wow, okay, half of them are faster than that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the first quartile you said was within two years, and it was pretty profound to see that study. Yeah, and it's shocking. So it's really the tail of that 20% that stick out, which are the things like the Gaucher's disease, you know, Genzyme's drug, which are, by the way, seen as hugely successful and prototypical of how you should do an accelerated approval, by the way. But what's intriguing then, if you look at the implications of, say, the Pallone bill, where they were going to, at the time, put a five-year hard stop on any accelerated approval clock, what you're doing then is putting enormous pressure on these rare and orphan diseases. Now, I presented data from Nature today in the panel that shows 85% of the currently untreated orphan conditions that requiring treatment are for less than one in one million incidence rate. That means there's just no way you're going to be able to address 330 people in a hard endpoint clinical trial. It's just not going to happen. Are the politicians really willing to say that we're just going to write off all of this innovation and these people were just basically zeroing it out? It seems like yes, because they went down this road pretty far before at least some cooler heads prevailed. As we've watched the Padufa process kind of kind of unfold here, and some of those those more onerous ideas uh, have, been, have been kind of set aside. I think it's really easy again to go back to the point. Like this sounds very cynical, but it's just kind of true. Like it's really easy to get swept up in attacking the industry right. and just saying like if it's an industry thing, it must be wrong. There's another theme that kind of undergirds that for a lot of for a lot of people, which is this weird belief maybe it's not weird but it, it seems weird to me that, that the NIH does all the work <laughs> I, I will I will attack the industry oh, yeah. and I will lose nothing for it because don't worry I got these NIH guys over here doing all the work and I always found this so baffling because it's like you're a member of Congress Francis Collins when he was director he would make twice a year he'd go up and testify you were free to ask him if he did all the work and, and you, you always declined you never did because you know in your heart you know the answer like it's it's not true Ed, Ed Collins would tell you that he he was pretty upfront about it you know Fauci he's not a director but he he was also on record about it like it's simply not true. That belief that comes up every once in a while undergirds this idea that, that allows for the exact attacks you're talking about, which is like, I can wipe all this out without any risk. Our study at Vital Transformation pretty much put that to, yeah. Put, yeah. Put that to rest. And uh, this canard about the, the NIH has made me crazy for, for you know, a few decades now. And I think the biggest problem is that there is a, a fundamental lack of understanding of how complex the biopharmaceutical industry is and how 
it's hard. You, you know, you can't just walk up to someone in five minutes and explain, you know, how, where drugs come from. And I've been doing this for, for, like you, like you guys, been doing this for a long time. It's a blocking and tackling on a daily basis to get people to understand, to listen and try to understand uh, what's really at risk. As far as the NIH is concerned, I don't think I'm disagreeing with what you said, Nick, but I think there's been enough obfuscation around the industry's role versus the NIH's role on, on the part of the NIH. I don't think they want the industry to be unsuccessful. I'm not suggesting that. I am saying that they could be more clear, more vocal about how important it is to have the biopharmaceutical industry to take the innovation that, that occurs in academic and government labs and brings it to market. That's what happens. They all know it, but they don't say it as clearly as that. No, but they're not necessarily incentivized to, right? They've got a budget that they got to fight for, (laughs) and they've been probably some of the most successful lobbies in Washington, D.C. They don't probably get enough credit for for that. They're up to 40-plus billion. I think it's 42 or something in the last last budget cycle. Like, that's a massive... I'm afraid you're right. I'm, I'm afraid you're right, Nick. <laughs> well, it's always the cynical lobbyist who wins out. I don't mean to see, like, the NIH does great work. It's, a, it's course, important work. But it is just not the same. And it no. is, is not the same. Well, I've been very grateful for John because you quote our NIH study a lot. Yeah. And, and the numbers I like to pull out from that, folks who are listening to this who haven't seen it, please go to the website, download it. We have a peer review publication coming. We looked at 24,000 NIH grants from the year 2000 because it takes about 20 years to get something overall to market. So from those 24,000 grants, we found roughly 8,000 patents and change. From those 8,000 patents, we found 44 drugs that entered an IND. From that, there were four blockbusters, four that didn't make a darn thing. And statistically, you can show if the drugs only had NIH funding, there was a zero probability of market entry. If the drugs had 90% percentage funding from the private market, another 9 to 1 ratio or more, it had a 60% probability. And, And, you know, I think people also understand NIH, but they think about the university-derived research as the same thing. And so oftentimes people think that university-developed technology that is uh, associated with spin-out. Joe, Joe and I are, you know, well, actually, you're the only outlier, Nick. We're all Wisconsin guys, <laughs> right? And, um, Born you know, and bred cheddarheads, all of us. Yeah. You know, Wisconsin <laughs> Alumni Research Foundation, WARF, Right, they're they're a good example of the fact that that's not that not technically really NIH. There's NIH funding grants that go into Uni- University of Wisconsin, but they have the tech transfer paradigm. Autumn released a report yesterday, a 25-year retrospective on nonprofit contribution, nonprofit university contributions to biomedical research. It shows a profound effect. But like those tech transfer license deals, there's a payment associated with that, right? Absolutely. So you're or a licensing I that, obligation. Yeah. I think people don't understand that like universities can get super rich. Based upon, and, and actually, the, the perverse incentive here is the fact that I don't think the university researchers who develop get very rich. The universities do. No. Well, uh, the foundations do. Yes. And in the case of uh, the Wisconsin Alumni Research Foundation, of course, that was uh, one of the original foundations, yeah. uh, university-associated foundations. Much of it funded on, on vitamin D research from decades and decades ago. And... It steamrolls, and you know that means you get more money, and then and you get more money, and you can file more patents, and well, so they've been very successful in that regard. The classic example is the Wellcome Trust in the UK, mm-hmm. obviously. I mean, yeah. it's one of the largest private foundations 
in the world developed from antibiotics, basically. But I mean, that's an example of how it is supposed to work, right? It's no surprise that the vast majority of the small biotech companies are clustered around some of the world's best academic research foundations, right? I mean, we're sitting here in San Diego. I think it's something close to 20% of the current startup biotechnology companies are coming out of here because UCSD and the rest of the, you know, diaspora and scripts are all here. And that's how it's supposed to work, right? I mean, the, the universities play a hand in the basic research and facilitating the better research, but I don't think we want universities in the business of commercializing and producing products. I mean, that is a p- component of the private sector, plus running those broader phase three trials, which are very expensive. And statistically, you would say that that's not a very successful pathway right. to choose. Right. Either. Well, well, and nor do they have the infrastructure, the experience, the wherewithal, the, yeah. you know, uh, they just don't have it. So fundamentally, if we go back to the CMS decision we were discussing earlier sure. and sort of the blowback where we are today, I mean, what we've done now is we've set up CMS and FDA on opposite sides of an approval pathway. Essentially, they're contradictory. This has also opened the floodgates for all sorts of attacks on the accelerated approval. HHS, Health and Human Services, could fix this like that, and they're not. Why? I wish I had an answer on this Secretary Becerra was up on the Hill testifying. He got asked about this. His answer was unsatisfying, obfuscated a little bit about, like, well, FDA is over here and CMS is over here, and they're going to be But there are different halls and he can't get across? Yeah. The the card doesn't work (laughs) across the doors? Now, we've seen in, uh, you know, the Padufa legislative text includes an interagency task force to coordination and again but you're you're right like they're they're both under hhs's umbrella they have very clear roles and responsibilities and cms regardless of what you feel about how adjuhelm got through the process and i you know i'm look i'm not a bench scientist i don't know what information they had there but it the wasn't the cleanest process yeah I, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll stipulate that but like at the end of the day it was an approved product correct and cms came out of their lane and and stomped all over it with a big hammer and was just like we are not paying for this we're not covering it and that was a big change and it does create this really big rift between the two agencies where cms is kind of indicating we have the ability to second guess your approvals because we will make it, you know, just so commercially unviable that your approval doesn't matter. You know, now Biogen has, has essentially had pulled all commercial support. Yeah, they pulled all commercial support for it. They can't get coverage. And that's it's kind of what CMS is now creating this new threat, this new moment. Like, if we don't like what you did, we're going to second guess it pretty aggressively. And we, and we do hear, you know, from our smaller member companies in particular, out, again, outside of oncology, that they're having trouble with FDA, that FDA has gotten, the staff over there has gotten reticent about some of these things. They're not keen to push through accelerated approval outside of oncology in particular. So it has real, real world impacts. And I, I wish I could tell you that the, the answer lies in Secretary Becerra, you know, just pulling Chiquita brooks Lashore and, and, and Robert <laughs> Califf into a room, but it doesn't seem like that's what they're going to do. So picking up on that final question for everyone today, if we look back 20, 30 years ago, it's 1990, we have HIV, accelerated approvals put in, Bayh-Dole legislation allowing for the transfer from NIH comes in. We get to 2003, 2004, we put the prescription drug benefit in. And if you read the legislation and you actually go back and look at the debates and read the congressional records, part of the motivation for doing so was we want to promote U.S. innovation. We want to incentivize creation in new targeted therapies. This was really the goal. And in many ways... It's been a huge success. 50% of all therapies created over the last 10 years originated in U.S. small biotech companies. Congratulations. 10 out of 10 gold medal. Fantastic. But now, today, 
everything's under attack. All of this is being unwound. All of the collaborative effort between government and industry from 20, 30 years ago is now being tore down, brick by brick. How did we get here? Two points I'll make on this. One, and I think the ecosystem in general bears some responsibility for this. We lost our ability to explain the value of the innovations. And not just we as in the biotech industry, but but more broadly, right? The, the community don't have a good grasp on the value. And unfortunately, that's led to a situation where, I mean, if you look at Vinay Prasad is an evidenceologist and a doctor at UCSF, and he writes a lot about certain oncolytic products that, in his view, aren't worth the money they're charged. And he, he sets forth the progression-free survival. And, you know, look, I think we also have to be honest with ourselves. There are certain products on the market that don't provide as, as, as substantial a benefit as other products, right? Maybe not competitors, but that, that exists. And the industry, along with the payer community and the government, have lost this broader threat of having a conversation about how we value innovation. In light of that, it has devolved, I think, into just a broader fight over, well, every drug gets approved and every drug gets to demand whatever it wants in terms of pricing, irrespective of the facts that show there's a whole arcane, opaque system that that has hands in the pie of taking money out of that. And so the public, I think, has thrown up its hands and said, just must be drug pricing, right? And I think that they don't they don't see the value. We, we don't do a good job of demonstrating the value. I mean, Alzheimer's alone is responsible for six to $900 billion, depending on who, whose study yeah. you look at, of economic drag, of economic output. The treatment costs for Alzheimer's in the United States is between six and $900 billion a year, right? Yeah. Even if you cured every of the 1 million Medicare beneficiaries with mild cognitive decline at $100,000 per pill for the next 10 years, you would unlock so much value in the system in terms of the treatment costs and, and the like that you know you'd, you'd have a clear benefit but i think we just have lost the thread on d- demonstrating and discussing value nick what happens in the next 12 months bio next year we're sitting down for vital health podcast where are we what's happened oh man i i think there's it's it's an even shorter time frame they're gonna take one more really hard run at the build back better act that's where it's got all the latest version of the drug pricing reforms that uh, that the democrats have wanted to do the parliamentary you know kind of protection that allows for that to be a 50 vote threshold expires at the end of september they're gonna make their run there and you know that's that's going to have very real impacts if it passes. That's, you know, a conservative estimate of government impact is $250 billion. That does not count any, you know, kind of private sector impacts that you're getting. So that's in, a, in an environment where anyone can like, you know, open up their Google Finance app and look at uh, the Russell Ooh. Bio Index. And it's it's a red line right now. It's going down. It's not not heading in a positive direction. So we're adding more obstacles. We're a- adding more challenges in, into that community. And that's that's unfortunate. And I, I also would say then, like, okay, so maybe they don't ever get that 50th vote. They never convince Joe Manchin that the tax piece is right. I think then the uh, the administration will turn to their executive authority, what they can do in that way. CMMI, uh, the Center for Medi- uh, Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, has a lot of broad authority to go after different reimbursement streams. 
that's very blunt, very hard hammers that are usually just designed to cut money out of the, of the system. And I, so I think you're, you're going to see this kind of be a continuous battle the whole way. Are, are we waiting until the point where there's finally a, a, enough policymakers who look up and say, hey, we lost 100 companies out of this sector yesterday. I wonder if we would have liked some of their science. I wonder if we would have liked to have that. And it's all in a, in a, a, a good contrast as we're sitting here at, in San Diego, and, and I'll turn it back to John for this, but there are other countries that used to be the lead in, in, in biotech. 1980, 60% of drugs were originated in Europe. That's according yeah, to the Arthur exactly. Dammer study. We, we are not entitled to have this industry here. It is something that through policy that rewards innovation, we get to have, it is a strategic asset. It is, you know, a healthcare asset that is a, a, of great benefit to, to this country. And we've kind of all touched on the different pieces to it. John has been leading a lot of the international meetings with those very same European countries who are asking him, like, what do we do to get it back? How do we how do we how do we get back to where we were? And then at the same lower time, prices and raise taxes. That always seems I, to work. Know. Yeah. And then this is before you know we we, we haven't even discussed uh, you know the, the Chinese government, which has a ten year plan that says we will be the number one you know biotech country in the in the entire world. Like so, again, it's if we're just not entitled to have it be in the in the U.S. It's four years four years ago in China there were. 220 CAR-T trials going on in China, there were 140 going on in the U.S., and there were 38 going on in Europe. And it's not just Europe. I mean, there are 62 countries represented on the floor of bio that we're looking at here. Um, I met with a contingent from Abu Dhabi last night. Their entire strategic goal over the next several years is to make the Emirates completely self-sufficient in the medical needs of their entire population. And they're doing that. They've built 24 uh, pharmaceutical production factories uh, within the broader Emirates over the past wow. 10 years. That's it lot. helps to have good yeah. oil money. They're not actively trying to attract right now, but at some point they're going to create a system that's so attractive because they pay for everything that people are going to just want to naturally go there. And if they, if they bolster the regulatory infrastructure such that they become sufficiently rigorous enough that other countries rely on that approval... That's a, just an example, and Nick's right. I mean, the European countries are all trying to do that. Japanese, you know, there are a thousand South Korean dip, uh, diplomat and registrants here sitting on the floor today. It's the largest coalition of any country or state. They're here purely to attract biotech investment. Yeah. Well, to use a baseball movie, it's uh, build it and they will come. Yeah. I think that's exactly what we're, going to, we're, we're seeing here. The other point that all of you alluded to, the experiments have been run. We have all the evidence we need to show that when you stop supporting an industry, when you stop worrying about where innovation comes from, when you price to a ridiculously low level, when you don't incentivize innovation, when you don't have venture capital, that's what's happened in Europe. We don't need to do a lot to show people that if that's what you want, that's what you can get. And the fact that they're asking about how to get it back is, I mean, that's wonderful. It tells you all you need to know about it. Like, it's right there. It's like, oh, and they're taking steps. I mean, the French government is having a massive uh, VC and biotech collab called Choose France in Versailles in July, right? I mean, the Macron government has said, never will we be in a situation again like we were during COVID where we didn't have capacity to turn on to make vaccines when they were available. We will never be in that position again. And I believe that. They're putting tons of government money behind it. John, Nick. Joe, always a pleasure, gentlemen. It's been great. Thank you for the opportunity, John. You can download the study from the website, and it's been great to be at Bio. Thank you for the Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. It's Thank great. you, guys. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Jonathan Ballin. 
Our project manager is Gwen O'Laughlin. This Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2022.